from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Welcome back to the Wharton Business Radio studio in Huntsman Hall, West Philadelphia. We are back in person for only the second time in the last two years. Only the second time. We try to do this intermittently when we're all in town. Delighted to be here on a Tuesday afternoon with the whole crew. This is Cade Massey joined by all of my collaborators and Wharton faculty colleagues. Eric Bradlow to my left. Audie Weiner straight away wearing a fuchsia mask. And Shane Jensen to the right. Eric yeah. and Shane are in N95s. Me and Adi are in surgical mask. is much more colorful than mine. Gentlemen, mask or not, terrific to see you. No, it's, uh, it's amazing to be back. We sound so much better in here, too, I got to say. Definitely. And I, I borrowed my wife's mask when she wears <laughs> most things in purple. So that's where is it that, came from. I, I, found, I found mine on the bus right over here. So that was just kind of a lucky break. <laughs> you mean you found it in your pocket or your back? No, no. Somebody just stuffed in the seat. I'm like, oh, thanks. That's a little gift from some random person. Yours is. Appreciate that. Don't have to waste money. Yours is the Professor Maisel recommended. That is correct. M- yeah. No, actually, based on that interview, I went online and uh, ordered a bunch for because uh, this is my heavy teaching semester. So I'm busting this out for several hours a day every Tuesday, Thursday. Are they living up to her recommendation, which was wildly enthusiastic? I mean, you know, I was actually trying it out in the studio before we even started up, and I actually have a cloth mask, which is a little bit more comfortable just breathing-wise, but I actually think I sound better with this one. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of actual kind of voice projection, uh, this is... Uh, better. I don't know what that actually says about its effectiveness. If my voice is getting through better <laughs> yeah, with this, voices but, come know, out better. Germs, whatever, germs whatever. Can't go in. Three M V Flex N ninety five. Eric, yeah. Eric is wearing formal wear over there. A, a nice well, black. It's a black K N ninety five. So that's the difference. Mine's the Korean K N ninety five. That's the N ninety five. But you know, I never knew that that was what the K stood for. It, it is all right. So cool. let's just spread the love a little more because we have Maddie D and Dion Simpkins in the studio, and it is such a pleasure to see those guys. Dion, I got one request. I got to see the smile, man. You got to drop that mask and give us that those Dion Simpkins pearlies. Come on, man. There yeah. you go. Yes, Woo. sir. Listening audience, it's one real deprivation. You don't get the pleasure of Dion Simpkins when we're in the studio that we do. But we are all better because of it. All right, guys. We got two hours to go. We're going to do as we usually do. A first half hour on COVID, then we're going to do two open topics lines, and we've got a couple of interviews lined up for Q4. This is Super Bowl week, of course, in a little bit of an homage to Super Bowl and some of our past trips to Super Bowl. We're going to do a couple of interviews, and in fact, we're having Nick Mangold back, longtime All-Pro Center, um, back on the show for um, Super Bowl week, and looking forward to that conversation. Also, going to talk NGS with the real NFL expert, so... Some detailed Super Bowl conversation in Q4. We are a long way from being done with COVID. COVID's a long way from being done with us. Curious in the world of COVID-19, gentlemen, what has caught your eye recently? Well, I mean, a few countries have decided they're done with COVID, or at least in terms of, like, restrictions and stuff like that. And it's mm-hmm. not, you know, Denmark basically. Sweden. Denmark, Sweden, both basically are, uh, yeah, Finished. no restrictions. Well, what do you think the consequences of that will be? Um, probably a little bit more COVID in Denmark and Sweden, but, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of, again, this kind of trade-off we discussed, you know, we've been discussing for the last few weeks in terms of like, you know, how you trade off kind of, 
you know, the benefits and, you know, the benefits of opening, reopening society, getting everybody kind of back to, to normal versus, you know, again, prote- protecting people against COVID at this point when we know how to treat a little better. I mean, I, I you know. They're, they're actual. No, uh, they're going to be on a different part of the spectrum than, say, Philadelphia is. They discussed it and they essentially said it's no longer a burden. That was the word they used. It's no longer a health burden. COVID is no COVID longer, is no longer yeah. a burden. So in other words, they have they are not overburdened in their hospital systems. Their ICUs have plenty of room, and that it's simply not a burden on society. Now that is, there are a lot of factors for that. They also they still have very high numbers of cases, mm-hmm. like we do, and they've essentially decided that there's just no utility anymore. Now, actually, I mean, I think it's a really good and rather scientifically driven observation. Okay, so, um, so it, is, it is interesting to see that they're doing it at a time when it's not, it's not like they're particularly so like picking nothing. a low in the number yeah. of cases to do this. You okay, know, so I, this is one thing that I wish we had more of, which is what are the criteria? Back in spring 2020, or at least summer 2020, people were putting out criteria for the imposition of various regulations, and they were laid out ahead of time, they were scientifically based, or at least partially. So, I hadn't heard this about hospitalization, which sounds to me utterly reasonable. If there's one thing that I would put my finger on for whether you have room to relax or not, it is what is the burden on the healthcare system? Because that's the real thing that can turn catastrophic. And also, not just catastrophic for COVID patients, but for non-COVID patients who need a care. So just a couple of things. So based on what Shane said, so what are we going to observe with high certainty? The number of cases aren't going to go down as to what they would have been, right? I mean, that we, I think we can all pretty much agree to that. I think it would be unlikely, since I, sh- I talked about this last week on the show, The if you did a bivariate scatter plot of the number of cases versus hospitalizations, the R-squared is extraordinarily high. Now, right. there are parallel lines because there are different cohorts of people and different ages and depending, but the correlation, the, the R-squared might be 0.95. So we're going to see more hospitalizations. That part is true in the short run, for sure. However, let's talk about the pluses. We will see a faster diffusion of this through their society. So all else equal, they will see a... They'll, in some sense, burn through the population faster than they would have otherwise. Second, there are other, let's call it ancillary causes of death due to COVID. In other words, because if the hospitals are full or people depression, suicide, there's other things. So those deaths may go down. And third, at some point, my guess is every society is going to get to the following point, which is everybody's been provided years of information now about the effectiveness of vaccines. The vaccines work. Lots and lots of people have gotten COVID. At some point, the cost to protect the remaining part of society might be too high for many groups to decide that it's worth doing. In other words, that last 10% that don't have COVID or haven't gotten vaccinated, you know what? At some point, that's it. Eric, this sounds to me like a marketing lecture. Customer, yeah. customer acquisition. Well, it's a diffusion model. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a steeper up curve, a steeper down curve, a shorter lifespan, mm-hmm. and the people that will kind of never adopt the product and service in this case. You don't just some, keep you don't keep on pouring advertising going right, the, every you know, last. Eventually, it's just the, the people have either gotten it or they've gotten vaccinated, and this last remaining. We've never. I've used this term many times on our show. The never buyer segment. There's going to be a never buyer yeah, segment, and right. you're not going to penetrate that segment. And you know what? The cost to the larger hump which could be 90% of the population, may be too high okay. if you try to. Okay. So a couple of things. So if you listen to them and listen to their statements, the underlying 
message that's coming across pretty loud and clear is that infection no longer bothers them. This is something that we didn't feel who's a year them? ago. Who's In other them? words, the, these countries, these governments making these decisions. It no longer bothers the but country. The, the fact that there are, are people are getting infected is simply not, it's an irrelevancy. In other words, they're not asking the question, uh, who's the number of people infected? They're only caring about the, the, the cases that are a burden, whether that's a burden on the hospital or a burden on the population by dying. And, and they're essentially moved it over to the diff- to category of diseases that we've always lived with. And, uh, and that's essentially it. Now, I can tell you, even our hospitals, we, we still have pretty, even in here in HUP, we have pretty high hospitalizations. But they've acknowledged that that is hospitalization with COVID rather than for COVID. And we're adapting. So, I mean, I get the, the HUP information. We now have a dialysis. Okay, so, yeah. so hold on. So, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's Philadelphia. Yeah. And we, I mean, there's big differences across the country on this thing. I mean, heck, even look at the, look at the deaths. Look how much the deaths are varying. So, by the way. This is thanks to some notes that Eric has in here ahead of time, but we're we're still seeing twenty five hundred deaths a day right now. Yep. COVID, right? And I mean, this is uh, what makes it sort of like one of the very many reasons why we are not like Denmark or Sweden is we're a gigantic country where, and, and I mean, I think you know if you really are going to try and actually somehow have your public policy decided by. You know, kind of the actual situation in you know, like on the streets. It's it's going to be at a very local level. So, well, what, what's going on? What what? How Philadelphia should be behaving as far as COVID right now is very different than how like you know, okay, a hot spot should let, be. Let's just acknowledge the actual differences. These are death rates, of course, and they're they're lagging. We we know that they lag, and in fact, the lag seems to have gotten longer um, mm-hmm. over time. But look at the difference per one hundred thousand citizens on the death rates, and uh, it goes from Mississippi. Arizona, New Jersey. So New Jersey is just across the river. That's pretty close to us. At least part of it is. That's in the 370, 360 range. Down to Vermont and Hawaii, we're at 89, 87. It's like one quarter, 25% as many, as, as, as the fraction of people who are dying from COVID, 25% is high in those states. And that's recent, not all time, right? That's right. That's right okay. now. Yeah. Yeah. The part that also, I, I think that Shane also brings up is that. The part that's kind of disappointed me the most is I wish we had maybe maybe there is but I wish we had spent more time the society and scientists developing more around therapeutics at this point because I'm actually still surprised that the overall death rate is as high as it is conditional on covid it is it's still higher than I would you think, believe, you think that it, I would have expected Given that we're two years in, okay. So, so do you think your expectations were realistic? Do we have do we expect too much from medicine? Or do I you think we underinvested. Maybe I'm. Maybe I've got science all wrong. I made an assumption, maybe wrong, because maybe they had been working on the mRNA for years and years. But I know they had. Maybe I figured if they can find a vaccine for this thing, then why can't they find therapeutics? To dramatically reduce okay, the what, death rate. So, so I actually know about the therapeutics okay, and, uh, and some of the work I've been doing with David Fagenbaum at, here at Penn. The therapeutics Fagenbaum are much, is over in the hospital. In right? hospital. The, the therapeutics are more on the front side than on the back side. So as we said already on the show, it's something I've learned from, from, from Dr. Fagenbaum, is that there's two diseases. There's the early disease and there's the late disease. The early disease is like a flu or like a cold. And the late disease is, 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 is when your body turns on itself. And we are not good at treating, if you're in that second stage, which is the deadly stage, we just have not made much progress on, I've been looking at some of the data on that, maybe 25% reduction in death rate. 
and in order to die, you got to get into that last stage. We're much better at the front stage. We can probably prevent you from getting into that front stage, maybe by at least 75%, maybe even higher, maybe even as high as 90%. The problem is you've got to get treated. The same by, people- by, by that, you mean treated Treated quick, quickly, while you're quick. in your in yet first yeah, stage, which yeah. means you're home. So I had I managed to have a, a wonderful uh, dinner with the head of the, our local, uh, um, the town that I live in, Narberth, Lower Marion, the head of the, of the, the ambulance. Um, and he told me about his day. And it basically is lots and lots of COVID pickups, all unvaccinated, all by the time they get to him, they're struggling to breathe. Mm-hmm. That is way too late. Mm-hmm. If you can't breathe, you've, you, you're too late really to be treated in a way that matters the way Eric is asking for. This has been the problem. It's the message, but it's the but. How do you handle this? The same yeah, right. people who are not getting treated when they get sick are the same people who right. could have gotten vaccinated, right. and they didn't. So this so, is the, so. I mean, again, we kind of it, it's hard to kind of talk in this kind of way because it, it, it sounds very sort of like detached. From, it doesn't sound particularly empathic or whatever or compassionate. But we have to think about like like to what extent what what proportion of COVID deaths currently are kind of avoidable. Still. Wow, wow, that's interesting. This reminds right? me of work that Ralph Keeney did years ago. Ralph, talking decision scientist, a real you godfather know. in the field, he talked about what a ridiculously high percentage of deaths are from some form of avoidable cause. Yeah, and I, right. I just, you know, again, uh, and by that, of course, I mean, aside from, like, actually coercively forcing people to get vaccinated that don't want to be or, for you know, monitoring people in a way higher frequency way such that they, you know, we know that they have to get to the hospital or whatever. I mean, I, I don't know how much of those kind of if those are really the majority of the kind of people that are the t- situations where people are still dying of covid. I don't know from a public policy perspective what we can additionally do about that other than cover the stuff we can do, which is just make sure it spreads a little slow, more slowly, so, et cetera. One, one question here. Are we unfairly impugning the anti-vaxxers about their response once they do have COVID? Do we actually know that no, they're no, more no, reluctant? No. But, but I have to say, doctors themselves are unaware of the treatments. And in general, when, right. and this is, again, something we've talked about here on this show, there's a very big difference between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, even in their even in their death rates from other things that have nothing to do with COVID. In other words, the people who are vaccinated tend to be careful about their health. The people who are unvaccinated. There's a a selection issue. Oh, absolutely. There's a giant selection issue. This is one of the reasons why the absence of clinical trial data on vaccination and booster shots with respect to um, death rates, I mean, sickness rates, mortality rates, morbidity rates. It's an actual... Is, 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 tr- is, is hard to, because of the selection bias that, that, that makes Kate's, it impossible to Kate's study. question is a really fascinating one because if let's imagine you have someone that's an anti-vaxxer, which means they don't want a vaccine injected into their body. That person, she or he, gets COVID. I would have to think their willingness is a lot lower because whatever therapeutic you're going to have is going to be injecting something else into their body. Uh, yeah. So I, would ha- I understand there's a difference between a vaccine and a therapeutic, and there's a history of taking no, therapeutics. Eric, I, my, it, it has to be lower. No, well, possibly, but I think you're taking the rationale given too seriously. People come up with all kinds of rationalizations, not just people who resist vaccinations, but for their behavior in general, come up with all kinds of rationalizations. My position would be that the primary reason people are anti-vaccination is downstream from some other identity. 
And it's not about. I agree with it's that. It's not about. Mm-hmm. But I the, think that identity yeah, what, possibly what, what, makes you less likely yeah, also to I get mean, therapeutic. But I'm agreeing with you, Kate. They're buying ivermectin off of vet shells or the tractor supply. They're putting weird things in their bodies. Yeah, but recommended by Joe Rogan, not recommended by the like medical industry. So basically, the latent construct that underlies everybody. You know, all, all, all I think Eric's kind of saying is there's some latent construct in each of us, and whatever that whatever leads to us wanting to or not wanting to take a vaccine is correlated with a general kind of I disagree. like our, our strategy of how we deal generally with the medical system and how much uh, we're we're willing to seek medical attention etc you don't think there's a correlation there? yeah okay i'll give you the correlation i just don't think if you're going to latent construct which i think it is a latent construct yeah. i'm gonna go like political identity before i go with what my See, what feelings about what is, you put in my so body what i would say kate is just sure. your opinion is that since this is kind of what I, I claim I do for a living, which is I, I posit latent constructs for things, and I observe manifest variables like the chisms people make, and then I try to build models for this. That's I, a, that, I think that's a reasonable claim. I think you're okay. I think you're no, good no, ground. right. Well, okay, good. That's good. We're <laughs> glad we agree on that. I think, again, without it's not a political issue here. I think there is what Shane is describing. I think there's a latent construct in people. By the way, that could also be correlated with someone's choice of political affiliation. Yeah. That's also a manifest Distrust variable. Distrust of government in general. There, now it's medically, there, you know, look, there, transferred to the medical community. There are there are studies that show even religious affiliation is downstream of political identification. It's we tend to think it goes the other way, and we are learning over time that it tends to go political identity first, downstream consequences sub- subsequent, and it's surprising. And look, there are there, um, and and this goes across the spectrum. Yeah. This goes across the spectrum, fellas. This is about folks on the left as much as it is about on the right. And what we're seeing in the U.S. is increasingly all the issues of the day are correlated. Used to be these issues were, were less correlated. Who knows, downstream or upstream, whatever. I mean, I think the key issue is how malleable is it? It's it's. I, I like that question. I and mean, I, that's what we're trying I to think, do, right? I think the other question is, if you're, you, you know, that's we're trying malle- to change it. How malleable are people's identities? Are you, uh, political? You know, well, it, I mean, that's guys, been well studied. Guys, let me let me interrupt. This <laughs> not is silly. Very, there are so not many very. reasons why people are not getting vaccinated, and they're very different from why people are not getting treated early. And sometimes they intersect, but they often don't. The, one of the problems about treating early is because you're not that sick, and people generally don't go seek medical care no. when they're not that sick. Because it's and terrible. It's, the medical industry is terrible to deal with unless you absolutely have to. Right. Who it's, voluntarily it's, seeks that out? That's the first thing. The second thing is is that the doctors are not that aware of the treatments, and that's something we'd like to is, try to, is, to, to handle. Is there a third thing? Is there an availability? Because my impression yeah. is... There is an availability because there's three monoclonal antibodies. But, uh, two of them have been discontinued um, or not recommended. I'm not sure they're available anymore because the, 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 the antibody location that they were designed for is considered not to be active for the Omicron. The third one is at a different location and is considered active. Um, but all of that's a little bit uh, wishy-washy, whether or not, I mean, they haven't really tested it. They just sort of, they just sort of stopped it. In other words, and the good one, whichever, whichever one that has a long name, and uh, I'm not sure I wouldn't pronounce it right anyway, um, is not that widely available. And so it's being restricted to those people who are more likely to have a seriously bad outcome. But that process is terrible. I'm not going to justify the system, but I have to say there's a lot of reasons why we don't get to treat anyone early. And they're not, and they're not certainly not caught up in the same reasons for why people don't vaccinate, which are also very varied. There are themes that come out, without a doubt. There's some, there are themes that are correlated with political 
convictions like this is a drug that, you know, I don't want to repeat them. They're so silly. Um, and that definitely is people anchor on that. But there's lots of other people who just don't trust the medical establishment Good. and aren't doing it for that reason. Uh, and so others are. And honestly, and just by talking to talking to the EMTs, there's a lot of people who just never got around to it. They don't they're not against it. They just haven't gotten around to it. Just sort of reluctance yeah. so I, it's a it's a good admonition we have to accept we're I, we can we can overgeneralize we can we can compress too much that said if i had to pick one factor you know eric is always talking about being an effect size guy if i had to pick a, the first factor i'm going to political identity i accept i accept your admonition but i'm staying with the first factor as political yeah identity. All, no all i was going to comment on was is that conceptually conceptually i don't it's not as easy in practice this is an empirically knowable thing in the sense that um, there would, I'm not saying we have perfect measures of all of these things, but I'm saying, you know, you could think of this thought experiment where you survey a bunch of people, you get their, you measure beliefs and attitudes. That's standard marketing insights work. You could measure outcomes. You could measure doctor's level of awareness of treatment. So all I'm commenting on is, I like all the discussion we're having, but we're also analytics people, which is it's not about politics. If somebody in the CDC or in government wanted to know what these drivers were, what the interrelationships were, they could construct a study and measure this stuff. So, great, great call. Of course, we're unfortunately, not... all these constructs are trying to measure are very correlated with the willingness to take part in said survey. OK, there's that, too. Just, just, just as with the political surveys, I want to say one thing on it, though. I don't trust the rationales people give, not because they're trying to be deceptive, but because people don't always have great insight into the reason for their behaviors. In fact, pretty well known to have bad insight into the reasons for their behaviors. So I like the study, but I want them to be measured more obliquely. I want the mm -hmm. attitudes to be yeah. measured kind of independently of the actual behavior. That's what my comment was. It's not a trivial measurement problem. And whatever proxies, if you use self-reported data, there are problems with there. If you use observables... Maybe, but those will probably be weak proxies for what you actually would like to measure. But this is what we do in science, which is you never, you know, you never have the data you wish you had. And so you use proxies for it. But I agree. I'd rather have observables than just stated intentions. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, Adi, so you're hanging with EMT folks, huh? This is, no, no, I just have a, I mean, he's just a very good friend of mine, and he's the head of the EMT, and he gave me a whole rendon. It was great. So, tell me one quick comment on Adi Weiner methodology the last two years. How much of your interaction with the healthcare community, broadly defined, has been happenstance because of your relationships versus intentionally driven because of your interest in the issues? Because you do report often these kinds of conversations that just seem to kind of happen. I mean, Shane and I did run into some people on the street when we were going for pizza about a year ago. We learned something about some attitudes that we were surprised by. That was happenstance. But you're reporting once a month having some substantive conversations well, with I mean, so, so getting involved with research here at Penn was I went and wrote something, and then, and then I was asked to present it here at a, at, at a hospital, sort of like, a, I don't know, they don't call it a ground round. It was online, and then I met other people, and, and then I talked to them. So it really snowballed. Mm -hmm. Just a willingness to put down in paper observations that you made introduces you to people when you're at a university mm -hmm. and those mm -hmm. people have generated context so that's mm -hmm. essentially how it's done What's then i of course have the side context i mean i, I worked for years with people in med school of medicine i still talk to them so mm -hmm. what's an example of a study you're doing now looking forward to doing or active in well the, i mean right now what i'm really really active in is just sort of advising 
some of the people here at, at the doctors on what are the effect sizes related to some of these drugs because they're all over the map. Okay. So, I mean, it's funny how so you mentioned... So you're coming in as kind of a statistical consultant of sorts? It's essentially helping them make sense of statistical data. So okay. I'm not actually running any of these studies myself. I okay. might do some analysis. So, for example, um, there are there, there's, there is a late-stage drug that's given um, that is given to people who are already hospitalized and in really bad shape. And there's been about f- six studies done of this. Most of them show a small to almost zero effect size. But one of the studies, these are all randomized, blinded studies. How big are these studies, by the way? Um, well, they range from 100 to 400. And I mean, okay. these people who are, who are going to be dying in rates of, say, 10 to 20 percent. So that's, it's a considerable amount of power. Yeah. What do you do when you have, say, let's say, I looked at one recently where there were six studies. Four of them had a modest but but definitely significant effect size, interesting both from the point of view of significance, as an effect size was big, and also statistical significance. One one or two of them had essentially nothing, and one of them was massive. How do you take these six studies and knit them together and then explain to people how collectively valuable this drug is? One clarifying question. How different are the institutions, even within these studies? Very. One one institution, multiple institutions, one location, multiple locations? All over the world. I mean, so it's what we call effect size heterogeneity. But what, well, it's not you, just uh, what, that. It's it's institution, location, heterogeneity. Oh, yeah. Are you asking? I mean, you're not asking the question as a statistician because you know how to build hierarchical no, models for meta-analyses, <laughs> yeah. right? So, you, mm-hmm. I mean, we all, I mean, and what Kate Absolutely. is describing is he wants to explain, which any good scientist would want to do, is explain the sources of that heterogeneity mm-hmm. in some sense of hierarchical way. So when you say you mean to, how you would explain it to people, you don't mean you don't personally know how to take the six no, studies I, and I, build I, a I, common... Well, the problem is, is that is that they are in different locations and they have different kinds of patients, which is the re- one of the main reasons why there's a big or heterogeneous effect size in this particular area. The people might be sicker. Remember, it's it is randomly controlled, so it's not as if there's an effect size that's confounding. We we know that, but there's the the effect size is mitigated by aspects of the institution and the yeah, location across the study. Across the study. Yeah, yeah. So what you're really trying to do is wonder what the effect size will be, say, here at HUP. Yeah, right. And now we can just do, whenever you do a meta-analysis or hierarchical meta-analysis, you have to make assumptions. Otherwise, you can't do it. No, If right. you treat all six as if there's no commonality, then then there's nothing. You might have to find the hospital that's closest to the one. Okay, and, this and, begins to sound yeah. like Pakoda or something, like similarity that's right. scores. That's you're gonna, right. You're going to run similarity scores? No, we don't, we, we don't typically do this. So I might say, well, this particular place, it might in Europe, has this kind of ca- characteristic that's closest to the hospital. That's not what we're doing. I'm essentially going to meta-analysis and do it a traditional hierarchical way by kind of borrowing strength across all six and kind of come up with a, a but, number. But, do, but because of similarity, you, they're not all equally weighted. Like that group of four, no. a group of four that are similar should come in as like 1.5 or something. Well, Is this that's the a idea? tricky way to do it. The ones that are bigger tend to get a little bit more weight. Sure, that's, sure. That's one sort of aspect that, that kind of works. But one kind way. of counterintuitive aspect of some of these hi- kind of meta-analysis hierarchical modeling kind of situations is that you describe like four that are kind of positive but not too far from zero they're all kind of clustered together if you add in that other one that's massive that's much larger you'd kind of think oh well that's even greater evidence that this drug or or treatment or whatever works but what it also it's not just shifting the mean up if you want to just consider that it's also blowing up your variance because all of a sudden like if you kind of believe that that was also a well-done study all of a sudden you have to address well Maybe the real effect is just that heterogeneous across right. the population. Right. Whereas, That's as it. every single study had, a, you'd almost want more every single study to have a small but com- very consistent effect. I see. 
But the thing is, is that if you look only at one of the studies, that was looking at an excess of 50% efficacy. The, my overall estimate was much closer to 20, 25%. Uh-huh. I essentially discounted that heavy result. Uh-huh. And But you can imagine the newspaper headlines saying this drug will dr- drop your chance of dying by a factor of two. Uh-huh. That sounds extremely impressive. And now that we pushed it back. Another thing that we're doing is remdesivir, which is a study that a drug that came out like gangbusters. Real quickly, Adi, to what you have on a few occasions in our history done a real nice job of of improving our predictions by just bringing the tried old method of shrinkage. So, like, go back to elections. You know, it's like. The polls say this thing. It's like, I don't, I just think it's going to be less than that. Just like, I'm going to regress towards some base rate. To what extent, when you pull that 50%, that biggest effect hospital or institution, when you pull it down, to what extent are you just kind of coarsely shrinking it towards some average? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm shrinking it towards the overall average because I have six yeah. drugs. Okay. But there's, I mean, if we go back to the very beginning, I mean, re- really early in the pandemic, there was a study out of Spain that took, um, I believe it took, uh, 50 people, maybe 100 people in total, 50 of them gave, they gave them high-dose vitamin C and 50 they didn't. It was, it was a small study, maybe even smaller numbers. I don't remember. Not, vitamin D. Vitamin yeah, yeah, D. Yeah, yeah, okay. And it was a randomized study. So it was open-label. So the doctors and the and patients knew which group, which drug they were getting, which was either nothing, the placebo, I think it wasn't a placebo, it was nothing, or the high-dose vitamin D. But it was randomized. So at least there wasn't any confounding into the group assignments. Yeah. And the effect was out of this world, massive. Yeah, right. There was, I don't remember it. It was 50% of the people in the in the control group died and only one out of 25 yeah. in the in the treatment. Or it was, p-value was, was one in a million. It was okay. so tiny. Okay. Yet this was generally and just broadly just discounted as a study. They said, it's a small study. And I said, well, I don't care how small it is. The p-value was microscopic. That was because the effect size yeah. was so massive. Yeah. But the doctors that I talked to would just be, something probably just went wrong. And that's huh. sort of an extreme huh. form of shrinkage. Mm-hmm. They just said, crazy results, you just have to toss. Um, huh. And they just tossed I'm it. I'm kind of for, intrigued by this experimental design where they knew whether or not yeah. they were getting the vitamin. Vitamin D is something you can just get. Av- like, it's publicly available. So what do you, you know, if, I, if I'm in this study... I'm thinking to myself, oh, well, clearly they wouldn't be running this study if vitamin D wasn't no, potentially, I, you know, well, a positive I, thing. I, mean, I don't know if any and of you... I, I got assigned control. I'll just go get vitamin D anyway. <laughs> no, I mean, it's just high dose. You're in the hospital already. You're not about to get your own. You oh, treat yourself. Okay. You're already, right, already hospital. Right, and you, you may but, not know what the other condition's getting. No, no, you don't. And the other thing is, is that, is that one of the things you know is that, is that to actually do a randomization it takes a bit of work. So this right. probably was extremely high speed. They just decided we're going to do this. And we're just going to random. We have a fifty patients here. We're going to toss coins and decide who gets it, and that's it. What about placebo effects? That's what I mo- with the open label stuff. You, one group doesn't knows they're not getting anything. The other group knows they're getting something. And yes, we I know mean, these guys are right. intubators or something like that. Well, they Maybe weren't it doesn't that matter, yet, but but, they, but a huge number of people died okay. in, the, in that yeah. early stage. Okay. I was going to go also go back to where Shane started with uh, you know the Swedish countries and uh, that are you know changing their rules. The only thing I wanted to point out quickly was a new study in JAMA just came out that suggests that people who've had COVID that their protection is much longer than they originally thought. As a matter of fact, they used to think it was a couple months. Now the JAMA paper, Journal of the American Medical Association, just came out. They think it's at least two years what? and maybe even longer. Define protection. 
So protection against severe illness and death. Okay, so that's kind of the standard we've started using for vaccinations as well. Correct. But they originally, literally they said what what we thought initially was wrong. We thought it was at most two to three months, and now they have found that it's much, much longer. And it could even be, they're they're suggesting they have to study it because they only have two years of data. It could be lifetime protection. So, Eric, how does that compare to what we're seeing from vaccinations, where we think that the protection from contracting it is quite quite quickly decays, but protection from severe has pretty good legs as well. Well, no? we the data that Adi pointed out maybe two months ago was you basically get 90% protection against severe illness and death from the vaccine if you're boosted. And if you're, and if you're boosted and immunized, you're somewhere in the 99% no, I need, range. I need, I need 90, I need a percent sub T. How does it, how was the function of time? In it, some oh, way? so this is what we argue about. It was almost, so it was consistent and flat. If you have boosted and you've gotten the disease, there's no decay, what? essentially. Really? None. The what? data has been a flat. Well, we we haven't disease. had time to see the decay if, yet. Because if you're, bo- like, up you know, we're still in kind of the first wave of, Okay. If you're already boosted and you were kind of, you're kind of on schedule, you kind of were in the first wave to get the vaccine yeah. in the first yeah. place. Yeah. No, there's. I mean, I don't it's, think we've it, had time to see what decay there okay, is. Well, no well, decay over six months is is something. It, that no, alone there, is there's, something. There's there's yeah. there's yes. there's. Well, I think the point that Eric is making, and that the data seems to suggest this, that vaccination boosting and natural immunity and all combinations are extremely long term lasting prevention against serious illness and of okay. course death. Okay. What is not the case is boosting uh, illness, vaccination, wears off in terms of infection protection. Yeah, right. That is correct. And okay. we don't know how long that lasts, and it does seem to go away pretty darn quickly. Got it. All right, well, we got the better one working for us. And if we had to choose one of the two, that's what we're taking. Exactly. All right, all right, guys, that has been Q1. That has been COVID-19 for this week. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you taped, coming to you taped from the Wharton Business Radio Sirius XM studios in Huntsman Hall, the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, West Philadelphia. We are in person on Tuesday afternoon, only the second time in the last two years. We're enjoying that. Rolling out of the COVID segment, rolling into open lines, open topics. You guys can jump in here in a way. You can reach out to us in a couple different ways. Twitter is probably the easiest. At W Moneyball is our handle there, at W Moneyball. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports analytics, and we love to hear from you. Complaints, ideas, suggestions, whatever you got, commentary. We love hearing from you. Also, we have a mailbag of sorts via email. The email is moneyball at wharton.upin.edu. Moneyball at Wharton. .upen.edu. We get as many of them as we can on the air. We listen and read everything, and we love hearing from you. So please jump in. Guys, I, I, I might have a chance. I've got some, I had some voice memos from one of our listener, one of our listeners uh, over the last couple of days on my football. Let, well, I'll try to work them in. We, we like to work in this stuff when we can. But let's start with what has caught your eye. This is Super Bowl week. That means also it is the last week of football. Until I don't know, like August, like way off over wow, the horizon. Oh no, come on, come on, draft, draft, 
You know, it's, it's not the last week. The we, combine. You know, combine. Oh, God. <laughs> well, yeah there's, yeah, there's there's all kinds of things that happen between now and August. The, we're, not, the last, we're not going to see football. The last week of competitive games until Training September, Training camp really. in July, yeah, I Labor guess. Day. Recruiting classes in college. Come yeah, on. all that stuff. I hear you. But in terms of games, this is it. So yeah. what, how are you feeling about the Super Bowl? What's, going on, what's happening right now? Well, I was just looking today at Massey Peabody, and I noticed that we have a Super Bowl with the third-ranked team against the 14th-ranked team. <laughs> and the second thing I was thinking about, is that consistent with the line being, maybe it is, with the line, maybe because of the compression, with the line only being four, four-and-a-half points? That seemed a little strange to me. Um, the other thing I looked at is, does anybody want to guess? I put it in the rundown, but maybe you didn't see it. Anyone want to guess what the Bengals were? If you wanted to bet on oh, the Bengals like at the beginning yeah. of the season, yeah. like what, what odds could you have gotten for them to win the Super Bowl? Anyone want to guess? I think I know the answer, so I'm not going to okay. refrain. 50 to 1? 100 to 1. They were plus wow. 10,000. Nice. At the beginning of the season. Wow. And so. Amazing. A couple plus 10,000 is way more than 100 to 1. That's not 100 to 1? No, isn't it? Am I getting this wrong? 10,000? You're, you're my guy on this. No, it's Adam. 100 to 1, isn't it? Because plus 100 is uh, you bet 100, you get 100. Yeah, you're right. You bet it's, 100, it's, you get 10,000. Yes, it's 100, it's, 100, it's 100 to 1. 100 to 1. Yeah. 10, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So my only comment was it reflected a couple things. One is I want to make sure that the, and by the way, FPI has the Rams as a 67% mm. chance to win. So here's my question Is the Massey Peabody point difference, which by the way does match the betting line, yeah. and FPI. Are, is is everything internally consistent here? Is sixty seven percent really only a four point spread? Is it is really sixty seven percent is about a four two point to spread. one is yeah, a four, four point, point spread. Yeah, it is. And by the way, the reason why I was confused is I was trying to rem- remember when the what is the most extreme preseason versus the final outcome, and it's still Leicester City winning the English oh, yeah. Premier League. I mean, yeah, that I mean, was five thousand. To one, and that's what yeah. I was. When I was thinking about the you were you were quoting the ten thousand to a hundred, uh, uh, the basically the relative bets okay. that you make, uh, but that was five thousand to one. So that was a hell of a lot more unlikely. No, and I mean, I, it, it makes. I mean, you, obviously in retrospect, it makes sense. I mean, that I, I that preseason kind of odds were you know at that time we didn't even know if Joe Burrow was going to be able to come back successfully from his Correct. surgery right, and right, everything, right. let alone the run that they went on and. Their run has been pretty inc- even, even conditional on him being a successful quarterback. They've still had an unusual. Let me tell run. you maybe what's bothered me even more is that they've obviously already come out with next year's predictions. So mm-hmm. where would you put out of year the shrink? We talk about shrinkage. Oh, yeah. All right. So they started this season at plus ten thousand. What do you think the odds are right now for the Bengals to win next year's Super Bowl? And where does it rank among the thirty, whatever thirty-two or thirty NFL teams? Where do you think? Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll bet on this one. I would guess that they're probably around the plus 1,500 range, something like that. You're so far off, it's plus 1,400. <laughs> <laughs> and they have them as the fourth favorite. Yeah. No, That's fourth course. favorite. I, I would have lowered that. That, that, I that doesn't surprise that, you, Shane. Yeah. That, that I understand they went to the Super Bowl, but I mean, they're going to the Super Bowl, but I mean, you'd have them as the fourth favorite team? Uh, does Massey Peabody? From I the doubt AFC? it. No, overall. Overall, yeah. I, I think that's, that is that's a inflated. High. It's a little high. That's odds inflated. I think the 1,400 makes sense. Um, now, there's. I think we're looking at such amazing amount of variability and very affected by the public. The, the, the Vegas, I don't care. They're all making tons of money on both sides with bets like this. Well, so what what does it mean for what you what side of the bets you want to be on for this game, Eric? You, you're, you're talking about this that's in, internal consistency, but let's just back away and ask, who do you like? Who, these numbers, what what seems right to you? I, I think 
two to one seems about right to me, but I would have guessed, you're going to tell me in the moment what the standard deviation is, because that's what's going to determine it. I would have guessed that that translates to more of a five to seven point spread somewhere in that range as opposed to like a four point spread. So your, your model of the standard vari- the, the variance in scores is, the standard deviation in scores is is lower than it actually is, is what it comes exactly. down to. Exactly. You, mm-hmm. you think there's less movement around the expected score than there less actually movement. is. Yes. Yes. Less movement, yes, less movement. Or or given the point spread that we have, there sh- if the distribution is wider, It'll give less probability. I and let's just, let's just be real clear about what it is. And Adi, walk us through what you believe to be the actual standard deviation around these scores and what that means for the probabilities at different points. Okay, well, I think it's around 12. I mean, it depends on what the models you're running. The standard deviation is about 12. This, yeah, it's about 12. In football games in, overall, not in, in Super Bowl. In, in no, NFL. not in, Super Bowl. I don't know enough about individual. I don't think we have special models for Super Bowl. It just, we we've, probably we should, debated it. We debated it for a while because there for a long time the games were just blowouts and we wondered yeah. whether there was something different mm-hmm. going so on. So one-third of a standard deviation advantage gives a team so it's a, a little bit more than yeah it's about right remember exactly remember zero is 50 percent to start it's not that much and remember that it's and so it's fat, fat the, up the there right fat You're right the distribution is so fat at the top it's it's a bell curve so the half standard deviation on either side is where a lot a lot of the action moves mm-hmm. by the time you get to one standard deviation you're 84 percent so mm-hmm. no no no. that part i that's got. that's right that part everybody <laughs> knows but our listeners don't all know um okay. so that would be a plus 12 is 84%. All right, so, and you said a f- about f- a third or fourth. Of, yeah, that makes sense, actually, because it's not linear, obviously. No, it's no, more no, stuff no, to yeah, the middle. That's now right. you, See, this, you convinced me on yeah. it. This is, this is handy stuff. You need to have these little rules of thumb for understanding what happens in football. And it's remarkable to me that someone as statistically as sophisticated and a lifetime fan of football as Eric would walk around with the wrong model for variance yeah. in these NFL scores. I mean, that that people underappreciate variance, period. That's just broadly a theme, and so it shouldn't surprise me. But also, but, I and, like to look for these what I call internal inconsistencies, and I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. For, I wasn't surprised that Massey Peabody and the betting odds are close to each other, because that's not that surprising to me. I just would have guessed it translated to a higher probability. And I think if you ask most people, though, what a four-point spread corresponds to. I don't think people would say that the Rams are a two-to-one favorite. But you have to remember, it's a, not again, it's discrete. So games are one by one, they're one by two, they're one by three. Four is not a common. I mean, it, there's so it's it a major, a little bit of a. It's of a, a major consideration yeah. in the betting markets. Yeah. It's what real live numbers, dead numbers. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think what's interesting about this because it doesn't rate as a particularly large point spread. You know, no, or, or you would you would expect a larger point spread given how surprising Cincinnati is in there, or three versus fourteen. But, you know, it's, I mean, it's also, I think the Rams are kind of, I, I mean, I'm a little surprised they're three, actually, even in the Massey Peabody rankings, because they were kind of a surprising team from the NFC, too. This is the only time we've ever had a Super Bowl where there hasn't been a one or a two seed involved mm-hmm. at all. So, mm-hmm. can I ask, what is Massey Peabody's point spread? Right around four and a half. Four and a half. Four and a half, four and a half. Yep. Because As I, would, I said, I, I looked at it that's this, without, this morning. Without any home field. And so what are we thinking about home field? Is, is, are the Rams getting two points here? <laughs> so, they this no, is, so, let no, me, let me no. Say, no, no. So let me say, I put this... Maybe my number one thing in the rundown. I'm glad you brought it up, Adi. I wanted to talk about it today. Think about the quote. It's not an experiment, but think about the experiment we have for the Super Bowl. The Rams are at home, Mm -hmm. but it's not going to be all their fans, so maybe we can tease apart fan effects from being at home, right? Um, The referees will be, in some sense, you know, we hope... Neutral. 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 So, to me... I'm so fascinated. I was exactly asking myself the question. They are at home. Now, let's imagine the home field effect was entirely due, not to fans or referees, 
sleeping in your own bed. Less circadian rhythm. We'll still we'll see it. it. Yeah. But that I'm so that's why I'm so thrilled for the second we'll, straight we'll, year. We'll, we'll even see a muted version of it because home field advantage during the regular season is because you're tra- you know the away team is traveling on a short schedule. Right. No, they're not. Etc. Now it's not as short a schedule, so they actually I, I think part of the design of moving the Super Bowl back by an extra week, beside the marketing hype, is is to kind of try and eliminate that kind of travel aspect. Well, so this is the second time in 55 or whatever years that it's happened. Two in a so, row. But you know another couple hundred years we might have a sample size enough to tell you Eric, mm-hmm. whether this actually matters or not but remember always remember that scorecasting this is toby moskowitz and john wertheim's book a few years ago they put the finger on referees as the real mechanism here because of fan interaction and so the the easiest hypothesis based on what we've, what we've learned from toby and, and john is that with neutral fans essentially and if you've been to the super bowl you know how remarkably neutral it is you shouldn't see the referee effects and so you shouldn't see a greatly diminished home field advantage. Yeah, I was going to follow up on something Shane said earlier, by the way, is that what's interesting is if we look at the total sum of the seeds, four and four, because they were both four seeds, I don't think that's the highest, because look, the Giants won this. Maybe the Giants played the Patriots. Maybe the Patriots were the overall one, and the Giants were the six or seven. I don't think eight is such surprising a number. What's interesting here is the four and four is yeah. the surprising number. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that I find it interesting, because people say, well, what's the... Like, you can imagine Well, the saying, men. The men is the surprising No, that's, that's yeah. my... That yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm done no, now. And that, and that's my point. We've certainly had lower seeds make the Super Bowl. Wildcard teams did even last year, but it's usually... That's where you get the bigger point spreads, is you've got still one or two seed against a, a surprising team. So having the surpri- sort of somewhat surprising teams come out of both conferences I think makes for a, kind of a more exciting matchup even though both of them are kind of like not on paper who we expected. So just to follow up with the home team field advantage here, the biggest effect, which is rare, is the actual deviation from altitude that dwarfs referee effects. So the locations Utah, Colorado, they have giant home field advantages. Mm-hmm. That much, Super Bowl's much only played at sea the level. Bowl's only played at sea. The, the secondary effect due to travel is the East Coast West Coast, mm-hmm. and that has to do with this, the circadian rhythm. This is a night game, played um, well. It's played in the East Coast on the uh, East Coast nighttime, West Coast mid you know Mid-day, late afternoon three thirty. So um, and and that is and and this is actually uh, this has been known historically that that the West Coast is much more advantaged historically when. For many years, there weren't any night games except for a Monday night. And it turned out this is a, a pretty big effect. There's a, a beautiful paper that showed that when the West Coast team played on a Monday night, they were advantaged because their the times they were their circadian rhythm was matched mm-hmm. up. A lot of that is disappeared. Isn't that also true of the West Coast teams coming east when they're yes, it was also true because they were in the playing, morning. That's right. They were they were they enjoyed it, and so but this is going. I think probably gone for the Super Bowl. Well, yeah, they have like that extra. I, I mean, all, I don't know. I don't know actually how long it takes circadian rhythms to align, but hopefully after like you know a ten days half, or yeah, something like that. Go so one question for you is, is: This was the most number of teams we've ever had in the playoffs, and going back to the beginning, there's been a slow progression slow you know expansion of the number of teams that make nfl playoffs so the nfl afl merger was whenever the first super bowl was 67 or so 67 was the first super bowl and but back then they're playing like you know two division champs or something and and then quickly they added a wild card but then i mean it grew from like four teams in the playoffs now we have 14 would you would you expect the chance of there not being a one two or three in the playoffs to increase as the size of the field increases absolutely now, it's, yes. it, you, in general, you would, but I, I mean, I, I think, I think in the future, well, one's, the, got it, it, one's got one's got yeah, buys exactly. This year. In the, in the future, if they do add another team, like if we go to eight, I hope at least 
that that won't be just a one versus eight, two versus seven count. I hope it's the first two teams still get buys. And then it's like a matchup. So I, I think one and two will still have an inherent advantage in the future. Well, the math wouldn't work there. If you have eight teams and two get buys, you don't have the right number of games. So you'd have to play it out, right? Because six teams would yield three, three and two would be five. Now you're left with an odd number of teams. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I, the I advantage know. of seven is that six divided to two is three, it's three just plus without, one is four. With, without the buys, I, I, you know, because I mean, the, 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 the ba- playoffs were super exciting. Some of the best matchups we've ever seen. After that wild you're asking, card a, you're asking a very good question, Shane, which is, suppose you increase the number of teams but get rid of the buys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now you have two counterbalancing forces. Now the one has a huge advantage because they're already in the second game. round. But yeah. now if you increase the number of teams, on the one hand, you have more teams that could knock them off, but then they don't get the buy. So yeah. th- that's very – it's an interesting design question. Uh, so one thing about that – I want to hear more of your thoughts on the game itself. But before we, we drop into details, what about the Rams in general? Because – they took a lot of flack from the football cognoscenti, the analytics community in particular, especially around the way they've managed their draft picks. They seem to cash out in a lot of ways. They 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 they, they sold the future for today, yeah, in ways that most people thought were kind of foolish. And they're sitting here four and a half point favor in the Super Bowl. The the, the one of the ideas that most people accept is suit there's that. Utility is convex, and that actually winning the Super Bowl is so much better than ma- making the Super Bowl or making the playoffs. And so there is some selling out that's worth it. What do you think? Of, I mean, to what extent do they get credit? I mean, I, I, I didn't think it was actually a terrible strategy. I mean, I agree that you don't want to kind of, I mean, you know, given how hard it is to evaluate talent, especially coming out of college, and give it, you want to give yourself as many lottery tickets essentially as possible, right? This is the this is the received but, wisdom among the analytics community. But, but I mean, I think, you know, I, I think the Rams basically took as an organization the position that they would rather trade that uncertainty for less years of control over players they know are good. You know, like though, I... Though, Shane, I, I, th- I feel like the overconfidence applies to free agent signings as well. People are too sure they know that free agents are going to... Oh, perform. but it's not even just necessarily free agents. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, like they... they tr- I mean, the tra- a lot of the trades. trades. I mean, the vet- veteran signings. Well, vet- yeah, but I mean, they are, you know, they are, I think, less chance-based than... Or, I mean... Well, trades, because free agency means that the previous team let the player go in some sense. And so selection would work against you there. Well, yeah, except, except you can find a lot of trade. The way these trades actually happen for the Rams is they found trading partners where there's really good players stuck on terrible teams, and that happens all the time. Right? Yeah, I think I think getting Jalen Ramsey off of off of Miami, or sorry, off of Jacksonville, and you know pulling Von Miller off of Denver, etc. I mean, they've done it multiple times. What? Pulling Matt Stafford off of Detroit. No, you brought up you know, you brought it up exactly right. They had great trading partners because Matt Stafford was, by everyone's measure, one of the elite quarterbacks. But they weren't going to win a Super Bowl, Detroit, with him. But yeah. the Rams might. The Rams want the Detroit wants a lot of draft picks because they want to rebuild, and it makes sense. Not for them every to do team it. can do this because you don't. But I mean, there's enough incompetent or poorly run teams or bad players on good team, uh, good players on bad teams. You can always grab. This so, is what the Yankees do every year at the trading well, deadline this, in baseball. Okay, hold on. This is what I was going to say. It sounds just like baseball, and yeah. we don't, we don't. We don't criticize the, the acquiring teams that much. At least we typically don't. It's just part of doing business. Mm-hmm. To what extent is that the Rams here? Or the alternative hypothesis in my mind is that they got lucky, that they made bad decisions and mind. got lucky. That Eric. was going to be my point because I was at a game, Rams at Bucks, where you know they're one play away from not going to the Super Bowl. 
they don't go, the Bucks go maybe, or the Bucks and the you know whoever wins the NFC Championship game, the Bucks Niners. You know, the Niners are now at Bucks. You know, you talked about the convex utility. I agree, but there's so much uncertainty, even in the NFL. Even if you stockpile yeah. a bunch of great players, that you're going to actually win. So the utility's convex, but the probability has a wide distribution it, about it. And so when you red. integrate over that probability distribution. You know, I agree with you. If the Rams win the Super Bowl, it was all worth it. But there was, even with these additional players, <laughs> but what you can say is, I, this is my view, without, with, just an opinion, with Jared Goff as the quarterback, their chances of winning the Super Bowl with an elite defense that they have was very low. They had to try, because otherwise they had such a small probability. Yeah, no, and I mean, I, I, there's an inherent, there's a ton of luck. To winning the Super Bowl, there's an inherent randomness that, but I mean that that applies to both. That that's present regardless of which strategy you take. Because I mean, you know, it's sort of like, oh well, let's not kind of focus, you know, win it now because you know there's a lot of randomness, and even if we stockpile an amazing team, we may not win it now. But I mean, like the other side of the coin, it's like, oh, we've got all these draft picks. There's a lot of randomness to that entire process, and you have to have that same luck of like hitting in the draft many times and having it all kind of line up at the same time in the future. Let, let me ask you a question that's related to this: How many years of poor performance would you accept in the future for one Super Bowl today? Like, how many? A give win? Me, give me, give yeah. Say you're the Rams, and you can just choose. You'll get a Super Bowl that you'll win the Super Bowl this year in exchange for X seasons of mediocrity after this because of what you sold. Five people should accept like fifteen. I think five's too low. I mean, y'all are, all are we talking mediocrity or are we talking tanking? Like kind Mediocre, of like mediocrity. just mediocrity. Mediocre. mediocrity 15, Cowboys. 10, Cowboys. Well, I, I can. I have the data for me. They're living it. The Buccaneers won the it. Super Bowl in two thousand two, and I lived through seventeen, eighteen years of mediocrity, and I was not happy about it. Way, way, way. No, too other long. side. Other side. You're selling the future, not the not not redeeming I'm going to sell past. the future. I'm, I know, but if oh, you two thousand two, two thousand two. You got to get back there. I think it's bad. I think it's bad for a city to go that long and be bad, and they don't want to do it. Five. Well, I think five too too few. I think you'd sell it's more. Too few. I think In you'd football? sell more. Yeah. All right, guys. Good good stuff. Um, Super Bowl, man. Good fun. Uh, we've got more Super Bowl conversation coming up. We've also got some Olympics conversation coming up. Shane's dying to talk about Olympics. Maybe oh, yeah. we'll do that in Q3. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to What Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Coming to you today from the studio, our longtime home here in Huntsman. Only here intermittently now, second time, second time in two years. Delighted to be back in person with the whole crew. Actually just lost Audie Weiner. He's in a step away. He'll be back. Otherwise, we've got Cade Massey here with Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. Short Q3 coming up. We talked a lot about football in Q2. We've got some more football interviews in Q4. Part of our Super Bowl tradition is to bring on multiple interviews. Going to do more fun stuff there. At the end of this segment, just about 10 minutes from now, we'll pick the game. Hope you guys are ready to put it on the line. What you think is going to happen here? But we do have some non-football sports happening. In fact, according to my television, there's some Olympic sports happening. Yeah. Shane's fired up about it. No, I am. I love the Winter Olympics. I think it's really cool to sort of see all these random sports and like, you know, things like curling and obviously like actual sports that's, that's that we so kind of know. It's so yeah. on, on the nose for you to list to lead with curling. Oh my goodness, these sports I grew up with, <laughs> I, I somehow still follow. Yeah, no, I mean and and of course curling is 
one of the best. But I actually, the, one of the kind of so things... So, clarification, yeah. curling, it's basically a recreational sport for all adults in Canada, right? Y'all go to these rinks and drink as a group? I don't it's think, like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm i not sure it's it's quite as, like, widespread as, like, billiards or something like that would be in the United States. Because, it's you know, you do need sort of a special facility to do it. It's not like, you know, but like, it, but is the, it would be like darts if you could just have a curling ring, like, kind of, okay. you know, it's, it's kind of darts, but with a special facility. But, but And they have... Darts because it's a bar game. I would have thought recreational softball or something. Yeah, except I mean it's much more. Maybe softball is not bad. Uh, it, it's this weird mix of like absolute precision, okay. but also athletic. I mean, there's an athletic component to it that you don't get with like darts or billiards yeah, or something yeah, yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. But there's the precision of dart or billiards. Okay. But there's also an incredible amount of randomness because. In the end, even if you have strategy and amazing precision, it's rocks hitting each other on ice. Yeah, right. And I, so there's just an inherent randomness to the kind of outcome that makes for incredibly compelling sport. We have an episode somewhere in the in the, in the archive, in the vault, oh, on yeah. curling. We've done curling analytics. Okay, but what else about the Olympics? Well, so my from what I've been watching so far on the Olympics, the one kind of theme that keeps popping out to me over and over again is just, again, what something we've observed across all sports the last like decade or so is just how much kind of advances in training, medicine, maybe analytics as well, how much is lengthening careers of athletes? Mm -hmm. Like the range of kind of competitiveness in these events is, is increasing over time. Give us an example. Well, so there's this Dutch this Dutch speed skater, Irene Wust. She's like the Tom... She's won gold medals in five Olympics no, in a row now. No, you're making this she's up. Won, speed skating. Olympic speed skating, five wow. gold medals in, in five different Olympics. She was one of the youngest people ever to win a gold medal, and she is now officially the oldest person oh ever to win a gold medal in speed skating. <laughs> so, awesome. I mean, and, and to have a career like that, to just spend... Yeah. Or, or this other guy, I've got another one for you. This guy, John Clary, he's a French skier. He's He, he just won Olympic silver in the downhill, Alpine downhill, 41 years old. Get out of here. I would have thought of all Olympic skiing you would sports. Think, right? I mean, you know, and it, and it certainly people were surprised. I mean, it's not something that was expected, but I mean, again, well, it's, it's interesting only, to hear it, this guy interviewed afterwards. He's like, I'm never going to abandon this workout routine. Oh, and so was, he's got his own kind of little Tom Brady, whatever kind of pliability type situation he's got. It's, we need it, to know. We need to know what that guy's doing. By the yeah. way, I would have thought of all sports. It would help to be young and dumb and down this game. <laughs> it probably still helps. But, but but yeah, I mean, people are able to do this in advanced age. And it's on the other end of things, too. I mean, we just had apparently one of the greatest figure skating performances of all time was this Ruthen athlete. She's 15 years old. And people are saying, well, the announcers are telling us that people are saying that they think she's the best they've ever seen. Yeah. She's 15 years old. It's incredible. It's incredible. And, and I mean, like, I think it's not just sort of training and kind of, you know, how analytics factors into that. I think it's also just medical advances. Like another one I'll just kind of mention is there's a Canadian like uh, Canadian uh, won the gold medal in this slope style snowboard. He had cancer three years ago mm. and he's, he was able to come back from cancer in in and and compete and win mm -hmm. an Olympic gold medal. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that obviously I feel like these are kind of situations where. Maybe it could have happened 20 or 30 years ago, but we're seeing this with increasing frequency. Th this reminds me, it's like the analog in football is, if you had an ACL in the 70s, you were done. Yep, High right. school ACL in the 70s, you were done for your life. And now these Burrow has one and comes back the next year and takes him to the Super Bowl. I think the thing that's always also caught my eye about the Olympics is, you know, I watched the women's giant solemn. Obviously, the defending gold medal champion, U.S. base, Michaela Schifrin. Uh, the fourth gate, she catches an edge. 
her Olympics is over. Not her Olympics in that sport. She has four other things she's participating in. The thing that it made me think about is these Olympic athletes have the greatest, not only training, but must be mentally strong. Let's think about this. Let's imagine it was her only sport for a second. Yeah. And she's trained for four years. One, two, like three seconds into her run, yeah. her Olympics yeah. is over. Yeah. The margin for error, it's not like you're a boxer. Oh, the guy hit me with a good punch. Or, you know, yeah. I'm sitting there. I'm a swimmer. I had one bad stroke. You make a mistake in speed skating and you lose your edge. You lose your edge in skiing. You're done. I mean, your actual, your Olympics is or over. The, bi- the biathlon where they're shooting and then skiing and then shooting and then <laughs> where, where, like, you've got to maintain that mental focus to shoot a target from, but like, I'm, I'm way actually far referring away. to a sport where literally any mistake of a significant magnitude well, eliminates... You, you, miss a, you miss a shot, you're over. Well, okay. In biathlon. Well, it's right. basically the same thing. Okay. You miss a shot, you're out. Well, I mean, you're not out, but that penalty the, is not something you can make up. The thing that's astounding to me about this concept in both these examples is that... You have to simultaneously focus on being perfect. At the same time, you can't be thinking about screwing up too much. Like, how mm-hmm. do how do they manage? Whenever you're going to run, you're going to run in your ja- downhill, not downhill, this giant slalom, about a minute on this really difficult surface, and you know that the slightest imperfection could ruin the run. How do you, at the same time, give it everything you can, lean as hard as you can to that edge? I mean, that's the it's psychology of that. Right? The yeah. thing is, also, is if you, let's think about the other side of it, too. If you don't do that, you won't have the fastest time, and you won't win. So, I mean, at some point, you just have to. It reminds me a little bit of conversations we've had. It's been a few years, but we've talked to race car drivers before. Right. And when we talked to them, we gave the analogy of fighter pilots, which is the guys that are best in both sports, fighter pilots not being a sport, in both activities are those, and women as well, who take it all the way to the edge, who are willing to walk it right out there to the edge of what's possible— and they're just more comfortable in doing that than other people are. It must be the same way with, with skiing. I would also imagine, maybe to Shane's point, while training has helped 35, 40-year-olds now continue to compete, I would also imagine there's got to be higher variance, which means, as I've always said a number of times, sometimes a 41-year-old it can be a 25-year-old, and sometimes a 41-year-old is a 41-year-old. And when that mixture comes, it just leads to... I mean, there's many reasons a 41-year-old can't win a race necessarily, and that may be one of them, too. It's just that everything has to be yeah. perfect, and it's harder for a 41-year-old to do that. <laughs> it just it was amazing. That was an amazing story. Yeah. I, I, I've always been interested in the, in the relation between age, experience, and choking. Yeah. And this sense that experience isn't necessarily a positive thing for dealing with pressure. That like it's to, really what you kind of how you frame or contextualize your failures and how what, does that accumulate over time or does it actually like do, you know right. like you have to have experience with failing. I, I we always talk about this with golf, right? Yeah. You have to have ex, you, you everybody experiences failure in big moments in golf. And it's kind of, does that then have this, like, extra hip advantage, like, (laughs) disadvantage to you in the future? Or does it somehow actually give you perspective that helps you in the future? Well, we've got an interesting example of that shifting sports in the Super Bowl this Sunday. We've got a 13- or 14-year vet in Matthew Stafford leading a team against a second-year vet. Now, Burrow's old as second-year quarterbacks go, but, you know— the comparisons to Montana, to Namath, Montana was in his third year. Namath was in about his fifth year. Here's Burrow in his second. 
How do you see the Super Bowl playing out? We've got about a minute and a half left here. Let's hear Shane first. What is your call on what goes down? This four and a half point line. I mean, I'd love to buy into this whole Joe Burrow is the next Tom Brady. Oh, you know, this kind of magical thing. I'm going to just go. I'm going to go with what I think on paper, which is that the Rams line defensive line is going to dominate too much. Burrow is going to pull some magic out, but I think it'll be reminiscent of last year's Super Bowl where Mahomes tried his magical best, but it just wasn't enough. And I think I think the Rams are going to dominate. Mm-hmm. It's not what I'm cheering for, but that's what I think will happen. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm on I can be short cuz I'm on the same page. I mm-hmm. think the Rams I saw the Rams manhandle the Buccaneers. And I'm going to tell you again, I said it last week on the show. If Akers doesn't put Cam Akers doesn't put two balls on the ground in the fourth quarter, the final score in that game is Rams 30, Buccaneers 10. Mm-hmm. And this was against Tom Brady and this was against the Super Bowl champs in an away stadium in a very tough environment. So mm-hmm. that Rams team is really good. They dominated all phases of that game. I like the Rams a lot in this game. All right. Well, we're boring because I'm in the same place with you guys. I, two, I, I agree with everything y'all have said. I would just add two things. One, everyone loves this Burrow story. And at some point, Mike, Mike Salfino gives me credit for saying this sometime in the back. like, fade the hype. At some point, it's like, I want to sell into that story because I love that story too. I'm pulling for that story, but... There's too much of that Massey story. Massey Peabody tells me, 3 versus 14. Well, the other thing is these these pass-block win rates that Brian Burke has pioneered, and we're talking about one of the, the – actually, the L.A. Rams, best line, blocking best line, pass rushing, and the Bengals are on the other end of the spectrum. 31st in the NFL. I just saw that stat today. All right. We'll see how it goes down on Sunday. We've got more NFL talk in the fourth quarter between now and then. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Fourth quarter, our traditional interview segment, at least in the time of COVID, which is the only time we remember two years on. Interview segment. We've got a couple interviews, being the Super Bowl tradition to do multiple football interviews. Delighted to welcome back to the show Nick Mangold. Nick was with us last year. Nick, of course, former All-Pro Center, two-time All-Pro, seven-time Pro Bowl. That's a lot of that's a lot of accolades. He out of Ohio State. Nick, glad to have you back. Thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You bet, Nick. Uh, man, it must be good to be an Ohio Stater, huh? I mean, geez. I mean, I know you haven't been there right now, but I mean, every year, just top of the. Top of the top of the deal. It's pretty good, right? It is. It's very good. Um, this year was a little, little bit more difficult. Uh, you hate losing to Michigan. Right. We had a heck of a run. Well, you don't know um, what that's like. You've forgotten what it's like to lose to, lose to Michigan. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but you know, it was, it was our charity that we we gave back to the kids at Michigan after being for so long. We had such a crazy year and everything. Yeah. Uh, we finally, we just wanted to do something good in the world. Yeah. And help them out. So that's the way I'm looking. That's at. that's very reasonable. Like I'm, that's just a, that's exactly. I'm sure exactly how the thing how that thing went down. Listen, uh, curious where you are right now. What's going on? How are you going to take in the Super Bowl? How much have you been thinking about football lately? As the retired guy rolls into this time of year. Are you thinking about it that much, or is it just a game to you? What's what's the context this week? Um, this week's always fun. Um, you know, the la- missing last year was difficult. Um, you know, it, it not being able to do all the things that you get to do around Super Bowl week. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm flying out to L.A. tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, have a couple of days out there, and then uh, you know, being able to, to kind of see 
it's kind of like everyone just comes back together. Um, and you get to see old teammates and old friends um, while you're doing stuff there in L.A. for the Super Bowl. Um, and then I'll be on the, the first thing smoking out Friday night so I can get back because my son, my oldest, was actually born on Super Bowl Sunday. Okay. Um, so I spend every uh, every Super Bowl, I spend watching it at home with him. Um, we uh, we make chili and uh, we enjoy the game. And it's just kind of one of the fun traditions that we've had. That's awesome. The past 11 years now. He's, I was about to ask how old he is. So what, what rooting interest will he have in this game? So if he doesn't, uh, he is obviously a Jets fan. He was born into it. Um, that's just how he's going to be. <laughs> right now, I feel bad for him, but you know, it, 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 it'll turn around. Um, love the confidence. So love he, the love the faith, Nick. Yeah, I always got to have confidence. Um, so he usually follows whoever I'm rooting for. Uh, if the Jets aren't involved, and so for this game. Growing up in Ohio, um, I was and still hold a, a sweet part of, of my heart for right. uh, the Cincinnati Bengals. Yeah. So we are rooting hard for the Bengals, um, and I'm so happy that they were able to make it back. Uh, I remember the days of, you know, Boomer Siasen, yeah. Big Daddy, Dan Wilkerson, um, back in the heyday. And so I need to see the, the Bengals doing well. That's great. Well, listen, it's not just Bengals, but one of the main lines of conversation this week are the Bengals' offensive line and the challenge they face trying to protect Burrow against that defensive front of the Rams. So it's we probably would have reached out to you anyway, Nick, but it's just all the, all the more suited because this seems to be maybe the dominant conversation people are having. And so I, I guess the general question for you is, what, what is Cincinnati going to do? Do you think they can get it done? How, is it as important as people are saying it is? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely important. And, you know, I think a lot of times you get the fallback on, well, you know, it's still Joe Burrow. Um, and, yes, it is, but you got to give him at least some protection. I think people are concerned coming off of um, the game before the Chiefs for the, the Bengals. They gave up nine sacks. Um, he was kind of running around and all over the place. And, you know, that, that gave him some cause for concern. But then um, coming to the Chiefs, the offensive line did a fantastic job and really protected him well. Um, and they made the plays. They got the win there. Um, so I, I think the I think having that down game in the playoffs, where you still get the win, um, but it, it didn't look great. Kind of you know slapped some reality back into those guys, um, and they're looking to to make a name for themselves. So it's going to be a challenge. Um, you know, Aaron Donald is, is an amazing defensive lineman, um, and Von Miller is still a you know, fantastic pass rusher. So. It's definitely going to be a challenge, and I think it's also going to be up to the coordinator um, to try to help get help where he can for for those tackles, making sure that Von Miller is accounted for, and, and Joe Burrow knowing uh, when he's got to escape with his feet or when he's got to just get rid of it, um, call Uncle and play the next down. Mm-hmm. So, Nick, this is Eric Bradley. I wanted to ask you, I always make a claim that in any football game I watch, I've made this claim for eight years here on Wharton Moneyball, well, I even made it, made it, may have even made it to you the last time we're on, that I can watch one sequence of each team, offense, my offensive line against your defense. I'm not even watching the quarterback. I'm not watching the receivers. You'll appreciate this as a center. I'll watch my line against your defense, your line against my de- offensive line, and I'll predict who's going to win the game right then and there. Am I nuts, or is it? am I overestimating the value of the offensive line versus the defensive line? No, you're definitely not nuts. And um, I would never say that anyone who watches the offensive line is nuts. Um, that's why I've been advocating for our own channel. Um, <laughs> that is awesome. We need, we need the trench channel. Um, yes. I think would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. But um, I think 
Well, yes, I think that does give you a taste of what the game is going to be like, especially in the first series. Most of the time, those plays are scripted ahead of time. Um, so you're getting a kind of a feel of what a coordinator is going for. Uh, but a lot of times offensive line, especially if it's going to be a run-heavy game, you know, that first quarter, um, it, it, it's not going to look good. I mean, it's going to look a, a little rough, and, you know, it's going to be tough sledding and everything. But there's something about being able to, to run the ball and, and to really grind it out where, you know, one, two, three-yard rushes in the first quarter, if you're really committed and you have a good offensive line, end up being those 15, 20, 25-yard rushes in the fourth quarter. So you just wear that defense down. So I think it does give you a good starting point. Um, but a lot happens in the game where, you know, the, things change, um, especially coming out at half, too. Hold on, Nick. Um, Nick, let's, let's jump in on this on this rushing strategy. Shane, you got yeah, Shane's well, attention. Well, yeah, so, I mean, uh, one, thing that, I mean, one thing we've observed over the last couple rounds of the playoffs is we've seen some very obvious kind of situations where, like, a, a defense just looks absolutely gassed at the end of the game. Like that that, that amazing Bills-Chiefs game where, like, you know, it, it just really kind of turned into an offensive explosion at the end because the defenses seemed to just be so tired they couldn't stop anything. As you know, you, you you talked about kind of wearing down a defense and what what kind of a game plan can do. Is it tr- like I'm always fascinated by like sort of why as a game goes on and it's kind of a high scoring here. Why do defenses wear down faster than offenses? Like in the line, like what what advantage do you guys have as an offensive line where you somehow perhaps like you know that kind of fatigue factor is is perhaps a little less evident in late stages of games. Um, I think the biggest key is, you know, when you're watching a defensive line and you see a, a guy tap his helmet um, and he runs out of the game and someone else comes in for him, they rotate. Um, you know, I, I find it very very few teams have a set four defensive linemen that never leave the game. Um, they rotate in and out. And so, um, A, you know, offensive linemen, you're never rotating. You're stuck there, so you're used to playing the full game. Um, and, B, you know, Hold on, I think you're just I think you're just game. calling them out, Nick. You're just saying they're they're weak. They they they're soft because they get to rotate. Whereas the offensive guys are stuck. So they just have to be tougher. It's a little bit the way exactly. you sound right now. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, <laughs> and I will uh, say that to any defensive lineman because I do not do not like them. Um, but the other side too, when you get into a heavy rotation game, and you know if you have very specific packages uh, for different looks and everything, rotating while it, it seems like it would keep guys fresh, that's a lot of running on and off the field. Um, And so for bigger defensive linemen, you're adding in, uh, you know, a 40-yard sprint to get off the field Hmm. every three plays. It's going to wear you out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nick, do you see either of these teams, you know, since we're the Wharton Moneyball guys, we're the analytics show, and we've talked about, you know, in some sense, pass, 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 passing tends to lead to greater expected points. Do you see either of these teams, when you look at their matchups, taking more of, let's call it a traditional run-heavy strategy, wear the other team down because it actually leads to a greater probability of winning? Like, they just can't win a shootout, therefore they should try to run the ball more and slow the game down, less possessions? Yeah, well, you look at the Rams, and that's kind of where they started at the beginning of the year, uh, where they were running the ball to set up the pass, um, play action. Matthew Stafford was running it fantastically. Um, and so they do have, they definitely have the offensive line to run the ball. Um, same as the, the Bengals, where um, they don't have, I think, as good as an offensive line, but they do have Joe Mixon back there. So you have the uh, ability to have a great rushing attack. Um, I think if it needs to be, I think, um, you know, the Bengals have a great chance of airing it out, I think, better than the Rams. I, I, um, I think Joe Burrow is the better quarterback in, in this instance. 
Um, but I can see both teams trying to trying to go the run the ball, you know, dip the toes in the water. Um, and then if it gets lopsided, that's when, you know, we're going to see the ball flying all over the place. Mm-hmm. Nick, let's dive in a little bit to – I love the fact that you're pulling for Cincinnati because this helps the whole setup. Against Again, back to the the main theme people are talking about, it's 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 the Cincinnati line against the L.A. defensive line, and especially Aaron Donald, and especially on the inside. So talk to, to us a little bit about being a center and being asked to double a three-tech or whatever, some interior lineman on the other side. If that's like a dominant strategy of the offensive line, say it is, what does that mean for you as a center – how how does it feel to play that strategy? It, this is something we expect to see in the game. So maybe by listening to you, we can see it in more informed eyes. And 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 if y'all are going to be, if Sensei's going to be double teaming, trying to double team Aaron Donald all day long, how are how are the Rams going to respond to that? What's the counter strategy? Yeah, so um, I think the big one when you see Aaron Donald moving around, um, it, it's going to depend on how the Bengals really want to attack it. If they're looking for double teams, um, they're going to try to move their protection. Uh, towards Aaron Donald and, and have the center help out there um, with the the opposite guard having to be one-on-one. Um, and that's where the Rams would really exploit things. If they could get two guys to, to be concerned about Aaron Donald, it's then one-on-one matchups for everybody else. Mm-hmm. That's when you know things bad things can happen for the Bengals um, because you have a little breakdown somewhere else and, and you're done. So. Um, it's going to be a big stress on Cincinnati's offensive line, and there are going to be times where someone is going to have to to be a big boy and, and put their pants on and, and block Aaron Donald one on one. But for the most part, uh, I think that center, even if his, even if the protection isn't called to Aaron Donald, um, if he if center has nothing to do, uh, my guess is his eyes are going back uh, to wherever Donald is mm-hmm. uh, to add additional help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what makes a great center? You, as having been a great center, have thoughts about your game, but now you're critiquing other centers. What is it that separates the great centers from the average, who are already amazing athletes and great, you know, successful careers? But what makes a great one? Yeah, I think the initial is um, is the understanding of the offense, and you know, being able to to digest information from the quarterback. Uh, what the defense is giving you, and everything that's involved in the play. Um, I think that there's a lot that goes on between the moment you hear the play and you snap the ball, and all of that is completely mental. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, you have, to, you have to have a strong base about you um, where you've done your study and you put the time in to know, you know, what you're expecting to see. Is, is what you're looking at what you expect to be? If it's not, how is it different? And is that going to change anything for you, Nick? Give us. Um, can you give and, us a concrete example? I put. Give us a play from from your life or having watched one on on game recently of a center going to the line. What he goes to the line thinking, what he sees, how he adjusts, what happens next. Like, just make that a little bit more concrete for us, because that's a short period of time. Yeah. I think a lot's going on. Oh, there's definitely a lot going on, and it is very quick. So, um, the the biggest one that can happen, especially in pass protection, is uh, you know you can plan for a four uh, defensive line front, um, and usually if you're in longer distances, uh, second long, third and long, um, you're expecting to see maybe two linebackers, maybe only one linebacker, um, and so when you break the huddle, you come out and you see only three defensive linemen. You now have to switch to another set of rules. Um, and how to adjust that. So that's a big case, you know, where if you've done your study and, and for the past four games, this team has always come out mm-hmm. in a 4-2 look, 
and you turn around the huddle, and now you're standing there staring at a three-three. Mm-hmm. Um, that that changes things. So you got to be able to, to adjust quickly. Um, and so the, then you go into all right. You need to alert the offensive line that something is different. And um, you usually have one call that's going to be changing these things. Um, and you know you get the offensive line. The quarterback's going to see it too. He's got his own things got to do with the coverage and everything. And then you go from there. So if you um, are taking your offensive line um, and leaving the right tackle one-on-one and sliding um, to the, the nose tackle um, and picking up the other two linebackers, you got to make that call. Um, figure out if the safety is dropping down, if you're going to have somebody further off the edge, you got to push um, your designation to the guys outside. The running back's got to be in tune with that as well if he's involved in the protection. So there's a lot of mental gymnastics that are going on mm-hmm. um, as you come up to the ball. Mm-hmm. It's extraordinary. So, Nick, how much in-game adjustment can happen? And how much does – let's? I, I consider the center, I'm sure you do as well, the quarterback of the offensive line. How much can you, like during the game, go to the offensive coordinator or the coach and say, I'm seeing something out there, and therefore the coach then has to adapt and use the data that you're saying and they're seeing? How much does that happen during the game? Um, it, it happens, I would say, a decent amount. Um, I, I think more coming from uh, the coordinator, offensive line coach, saying, hey, listen, this is what the booth is seeing. Is this how you're seeing it? Mm. Are we on the same page? And that's mm. that's the bigger thing. Is um, You know, everyone's looking at the same thing, but if you're interpreting that look differently, saying, all right, well, that, to me, that's a 3-3 defense. And the offensive coordinator is saying, no, that's a 4-2 this defensive end is just up here right you, you need to work that out um and so that's a big communication there are i would say in a course of a game and it also very much depends on how the offense is set up if the quarterback controls everything if the offensive line um is able to to work on their own but also communicate with the quarterback on what they're doing um so there's a lot of different variables that know you know you watch um like tom brady work you know, when he was, especially in New England, um, with his centers for a long time, uh, he would come up there and he would dictate everything. And then, you know, the, the center would go off of what he said and make sure the, the offensive line was uh, on point. Um, there's other offenses where, you know, the offensive line will get set and, you know, you you hope that the quarterback and the center are on the same page because, you know, the, the center – um, kind of controlled where everything was going. So mm-hmm. um, it, it depends on the offense um, scheme that you're doing. And I would say over the course of a 60-play game, um, I would say probably the most uh, absurd changes for each, for a play, you probably do it six times, um, you know, 10%. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it really doesn't happen that much because there's so much studying that goes in mm-hmm. um, and you're, you're so well-prepared. But then there are probably – and it usually is on third downs um, where, you know, so they'll throw a wacky look at you. Mm-hmm. And you have to change something um, pre-snap before um, before you have a chance to talk about it on the sideline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nick, uh, one more question for you before we let you go. Talk a little bit about Joe Burrow and, and more, you know, more generally about the difference that a quarterback can make for the whole team. People, people, people are really selling this story right now that he's something different, that he's elevated the whole team, that he's – carrying the Bengals. Clearly they can take that too far, but some of it might be true, and we'd like to hear about it from you. Like how, in what way does a quarterback like Burrow and or a leader personality like Burrow change the character or the performance of the rest of the team? 
Yeah, um, it, it's huge. You know, when you have a quarterback that has um, the almost the swagger that Joe Burrow has, and, um, has the the commitment to winning, and the way that he um, not only carries himself that you see outwardly, but you can tell by the way this team has rallied around him that he's done the work in the off season. Um, not only you know making sure that he stays physically right, but mentally right. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about a sophomore slump uh, for guys coming out of the second year slump. And that did not show at all. And that just shows me that he took the time, you know, while he was rehabbing uh, to stay in tune with the offense, to stay uh, with his guys, you know, learning the playbook, learning everything that he can. Um, and that shows because, you know, they're in the big dance uh, playing for that championship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm just very interested, Nick. How many people that know the game as well as you would agree that I think you even said Joe Burrow you think is the better quarterback than Matthew Stafford do you think that's something of people that really know football like yourself that have that belief um I don't know and it's kind of one of those things where we always it's so other than Tom Brady it's so subjective of like oh well you know this guy is better than this guy and we can only go off of stats you're like well he doesn't have stats yet um I just think the way that that Joe Burrow has elevated that team um, to where, you know, no one was expecting them to be in the Super Bowl. Uh, for them to be here, the way that he's playing, the way that he commands that offense um, has shown that he's got something special. Um, and, you know, it, it, I, I foresee Joe Burrow's career going better than Matthew Stafford's. <laughs> All right. Good forecast. We love the predictions up here. People putting the chips out there. Appreciate it, Nick. Appreciate your being with us. Before you go, give us the update on 74 Barbecue Sauces. We talked about this last year. This is a not-for-profit venture of sorts, and we know you're into food. We know you have the tradition with your son, but we also know you have this very cool barbecue sauce venture. Yeah, this is my 74 Barbecue. Um, it's mine. Uh, it's not some company that came to me and said, let's slap your name on this label. Uh, it's my recipe. I made it in my kitchen, um, and it's my baby, and that's why we're going out to L.A. this year. Um, we're really pushing the, the barbecue sauce. You can find it um, on Amazon um, and then kind of in our little uh, New York tri-state area. Uh, we're trying to spread out. And, um, you know, we're getting, I like to say grilling seasons all year round, um, but we're getting close to the actual grilling season starting up. So we're making this big push uh, to get it out there because um, I love I love food and I love what barbecue does for people, brings people together um, and has a great sense of community. So, this is my opportunity to uh, to put something out there to, to bring people together and also uh, give back to uh, the families of fallen first responders here in the New York City area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, terrific. We wish you the best with it. Matty D., uh, you should pull up some uh, barbecue sauce for us. We need some Wharton Moneyball um, experiments. We like to experiment, Nick, so we're happy to experiment with some barbecue sauces. We'll give it a, we'll give it a whirl. We need, we need to try this stuff. Nick, enjoy the trip out to L.A. Enjoy the chili with your 11-year-old on Sunday. Thank you again for being here with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, guys. Appreciate it. All right. Nick Mangold, two-time All-Pro, seven-time Pro Bowl center, all with the Jets coming out of Ohio State. Two-time visitor here at Wharton Moneyball as well. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. We have a second guest now. Super Bowl week calls for more than one guest. We're delighted to welcome to the show first time Mike Band. Mike is Senior Manager of Next Gen Stats in GS. Next Gen Stats Research and Analytics at the National Football League. That sounds like Mike Lopez shop. He previously worked with the Minnesota Vikings, before that the Florida Gators. Mike, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. 
We're delighted to have you, Mike. We, we're going to talk about NGS always, and especially from people who are true experts in it. But before we start, I mean, NGS for NFL is is a pretty high-profile gig. In the living the dream. Yeah. yeah, there is. From an analytics community, that is living the dream. I mean, also working for Mike Lopez, that's, that's living the dream oh, as well. Uh, Mike, tell us how you got there. What was the gig with the Vikings, with the Gators? And so, I mean, the Florida Gators were doing stuff. Let's hear about that. And then even how you got started from there. You're, is it, am I right that you're a University of Chicago guy? I was, yes. And uh, it's funny. I'm going to end this, end this whole story by connecting it back to uh, your work with, uh, you know, Professor Thaler and, and, and with the NFL draft. But really, uh, it stems back from uh, what I tell anyone who's in undergrad and wants to get into sports analytics get in as early as you can uh it was my junior year at the university of florida uh coach muschamp and and staff came on and dan quinn was a defensive coordinator oh my bryant young now a hall of famer was the defensive lines defensive line coach it was a pretty fun time and uh, i i got into the recruiting office simply as a volunteer stuffing envelopes and cutting up tape and it eventually turned into a uh really a, a, an everyday thing no uh, kidding so yeah it, it it was always about you know parlaying uh success to the future yeah. and it is you know it, starting with uh with the draft that was sort of my first passion the scouting world mm-hmm. and i find studies including your own uh on analytical thinking and methodology uh is the, the psychology of decision making behind it, mm-hmm. uh, and when you put that with Moneyball, the book, and, and you know, pun intended, uh, it, it all sort of fit at that point. So this is uh, 2011, 2012 season. Uh, fast forward a few, really not too long. Uh, I get connected to the Minnesota Vikings, mm-hmm. uh, and this is actually the connection was the Vikings hired or utilized. A, and several teams used to utilize a psychological testing uh, third party, which mm-hmm. would come in and test the players and give different scores on different dimensions. And when I heard this existed when I was at Florida, it, my, I mean, my jaw just absolutely dropped. Mm-hmm. And so through this connection, I was able to, uh, to introduce myself to, to Rick Spielman and the, and the Vikings staff. Uh, and, and really with the whole, this is, you know, more or less before the work, analytics was a, a major part of the NFL. Right. Uh, but really it was, you know, taking work that could be done in Excel, work that can be done truly by simplifying and presenting data in a visual way. Well, you know, just fast forward uh, again a few years and we bring on uh, an analytics consulting firm to help us with the 2015 draft. Uh, you know, we get into the idea of uh, of, 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 of ensemble modeling where we're taking every single possible metric we can quantify and qualify uh, for each prospect and build a model for each position group. Truly, it was an astounding uh, result we ended up with. Stefan Diggs in the fifth round, as we all remember, Daniel Hunter in the third round, Kendricks in the second. Mm-hmm. We even ended up with Anthony Harris as an undrafted free agent, Justin Coleman as an undrafted free agent. And my absolute favorite, Taylor Heineke. Uh, so it was a it was a hell of a 2015 draft class. But at the same time, I didn't have the data science experience. This is a new emerging field, and I've been focusing on Excel and scouting and and, and the draft. I need to go back to school and get my master's in in, in analytics. And so that's what I did. Uh, I ended up at U Chicago. 
I found your study and I replicated it and tried to make the new NFL draft curve to come up with not only a curve that can could help you uh, compare possible selections and possible trades, but to compare all permutations mm-hmm. of how to maximize the surplus value that you receive in the trade while your opponent receives the value of the Jimmy Johnson trade. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, we got a soft spot for that. We talk about it on the show on a regular basis. It sounds like a real nice extension, um, and it sounds like that helped you move into the next phase of analytics. That program at Chicago helped you kind of up your game in some sense because NGS is a long way from stuffing envelopes for the Gators, even a long way from running Excel sheets for the Vikings, right? That's absolutely right. And uh, I would say the U Chicago experience was the – was the absolute uh, reaffirmation that that you're on the right track, even if you still you are still in Microsoft Excel and creating reports there. You're on the right track because you're learning the concepts around data. So when we started to get more into those theoretical statistical classes, the numbers and the concepts made sense. It made rational sense. A, a, a logistic regression model uh, made sense. It, it, it made sense how to how uh, you know decision trees are optimized. It made sense what the difference between boosted trees and, and random forests. And you continue to, to pile on those those simply uh, uh, lessons that you learn along the way. And then you find a team like the Next Gen Stats Group here in Los Angeles, where I mean, at the, it, if timing and, and is everything, timing was was certainly on. On my side in this case, because uh, really it was an emergent, emerging team here at the NFL Media Group. Uh, we were only slowly create. I mean, it was it, it, to steal a line from from Billy Bean from years ago at the MIT Sloan Conference. We had dollar bills on uh, on trees to create yeah. stats. We yeah, could, right. You know, we could we could classify whether or not you're in shotgun or whether or not a player went in motion or how much separation a receiver got. No, you're there but, You're there when, when the field is created. I mean, you were lit, literally defining st- new statistical categories. I mean, there, there aren't that many opportunities like that, and you were there. Still it's are. A, it, 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 you know what? It's, uh, for the sake of my control freakness over naming columns and fields, I am proud to have done it. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, no, it, let, it, let, yes, let's bounce it forward to 2022. And, yeah. and and tell us what your group is learning about the matchup we're going to watch on Sunday. And, you know, we've, we've just we've just come off the phone with Nick Mangold talking about the defensive line matchup. Everybody's talking about the defensive line matchup, the, the, the Rams defensive line against the Bengals offensive line. You know, one of the responses they're apt to have is to, you know, utilize the quick game as much as possible. Burrow loves to just, you know, let's go five wide. I'll take care of it. I'll read it. I'll take I'll get the ball out quick. What do you learn when you apply NGS to that strategy, the Bengals' quick game against the Rams' pasty? And then, of course, they can't do that the whole game. So what what do you learn when you start talking about when they try to go vertical against that Rams' pasty? Yeah, that's exactly it. So uh, it really comes down to score differential uh, and game flow. I think that's what's really going to dictate the Bengals' offense's chance of, of competing in this game. What I find in the data is actually that the quick game is not only a way to negate the strength of the pass rush and the weakness of the offensive line. It's also an area where the Rams' defense has struggled to 
limit big plays after the catch. No team gave up more yards after the catch on quick passes in the regular season than the Rams. Hmm. The Rams' opponents averaged the third fastest time to throw. So those numbers all correlate with Aaron Donald's presence on the field. Aaron Donald rarely comes off. I believe he might have missed 80 total pass plays, including playoffs this season. Hmm. And when he's not on the field, quarterbacks are holding for uh, about two-tenths of a second longer. Okay, interesting. So when it comes down to it, because Donald's on the field, because Von Miller's on the field, because Leonard Floyd's on the field, and because those matchups provide difficulty for your offensive line, and then the fact that that Joe Burrow is uh, you know, deadly accurate in the short and quick game, he can find his guys in space, he finds Chase on those quick uh, in-breaking uh, in routes, uh, he'll also get him in motion and get him uh, the ball in space to get him over the full head of steam. So what I imagine is the score differential will be key. If the Bengals take an early lead, they can ride the quick game and pick apart the Rams' defense, control the clock, and run through the air. But if they do go down, then it becomes an issue where how much time does Joe Burrow have in the pocket for, Joe, for Jamar Chase's go route to develop? And it has certainly been enough in, in several games this season. I believe Burrow and Chase, I've uh, connected for seven go-route touchdowns this season, and I don't think anybody's close. Hmm. But hmm. whether or not that happens again this Sunday has to do more with the offensive line's ability to hold than it is the Jamar Chase, Jalen Ramsey, or T. Higgins, Darius Williams, Grant Haley matchup. Mm-hmm. And how much of this story is kind of going to be determined also by something we can't necessarily anticipate in advance, which is kind of the scheming that's going to be used from either uh, on either side? I mean, certainly, you know, I, I found notable and kind of the, one of the notable things about this playoffs is, is you know, the presence of Matthew Stafford on, on the Rams instead of Jared Goff, and specifically that amazing play that Matthew Stafford made at the end of the Bucks rams game, where in the face of a blitz— he was able to kind of keep his composure and hit cup over the middle. And that's something that, you know, of course, Jared Goff, like kind of famously, that that's a particular type of scheme that, that maybe less experienced quarterbacks like Jared Goff, um, you know, would, would struggle more with. So scheme obviously factors a huge into this, and that's kind of to the extent that the Rams have a quarterbacking advantage. It's just sort of experience versus inexperience. Stafford versus Burrow. Do you kind of how much do you think that scheme is going to be able to impact kind of like we've already talked about kind of differences in personnel between the two teams in the trenches? How much is scheme gonna kind of be a big part of that story? It's a fantastic question and a great tee up. Uh, uh really for for a colleague of mine's uh article that's coming out tomorrow and that really compares uh, the difference between the Rams' offense in 2021 this season versus 2018. And the biggest difference is that upgrade at the quarterback position between from Jared Goff to Matthew Stafford. The Rams' offense doesn't have to run as much play action. They don't have to create as much play face. They don't have to necessarily rely so much on that outside zone run game. They're able to take more chances downfield. They're able to take more uh, uh, vertical shots. Uh, you know, Cooper Cup has really gone from being one of the most dynamic crossing routes, uh, you know, shallow crossers, uh, uh, route runners, with his ability to find space and create, to now being one of the best post route runners in the league. And it has to do with his ability to, again, find space 
and Stafford to find him in that space. So what I think that the that Stafford has done for for at least McVay's offense is it's taken off the governor. There's no more limitations. You don't necessarily have to run motion every play. You don't have to run 11 personnel on 99% of plays. Uh, you know, you know it, these concepts that might have been. I, I, I refuse to word. I refuse to use the word gimmicky, to, but at the same time, motion, play action, uh, intermediate throws. These are all things that are high, higher in, in, in expected value. We know just by uh, holistically on the whole. And when you have a quarterback that enables that enables you to do even the 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 stuff on scripts, the, the the quick passing game and the vertical passing game. What I think Stafford allows McVay to do is stay on script, and they've done it pretty much uh, throughout the year, with the exception of midway, you know, with a little road bump midway through the season. So, Mike, just quickly in your answer to Shane, you had mentioned, and also to Cade, the quick passing game. Obviously, the Rams know this. So, given you went to Chicago, obviously, you've, I'm sure you took many courses in game theory. So, why, you know, if the Rams know that the Bengals know that they're going to use the quick passing game, can't the Rams stop the quick passing game and therefore force Burrow to sit back, take longer? They'll only rush four. They'll press the line of scrimmage. Why doesn't that type of, I'm calling it Bradlow's simplistic thinking, why doesn't that work? Can't they just take that away? I wish we talked about game theory and the nature of the coaching schemes on every football broadcast because that's really what it comes down to. Uh, you know, I think no, I think it's going to be more than just the quick passing game because uh, what Joe Burrow has shown is he has confidence in his guys and he know you know he knows Jamar Chase and T Higgins are going to turn. Uh, 50-50 balls into 60-40 balls. So when I think the matchup is right, right, you've got 6-1 Jalen Ramsey and then you've got two five nine corners on the other side. When the matchup is right, when they get certain looks that they like, I do think that, that they're going to take those quick shots, those quick strikes, maybe perhaps uh, in the, in the uh, lower red zone or in the higher red zone. Um, but really going back to the game theory question, yes, I do think uh, you might see Raheem Morris mix up what he's done in the past. Now, this really stems to a question about will Jalen Ramsey shadow Jamar Chase or, or T. Higgins? And the answer is likely no. Jalen Ramsey has been 34% in the slot this season. And that's what that, that's what I'm going to use to help answer your question. I think you might see Jalen Ramsey line more in the slot, play a little bit more robber coverage where he's breaking down on slants when he sees them. I think you're going to see a lot more of, uh, you know, Taylor Rapp. Now that he's healthy, he's going to be more of a box defender playing downhill and, again, trap coverage. Uh, I think the whole point of what the Rams want to do is create negative plays. It doesn't necessarily have to be interceptions. It doesn't necessarily have to be sack. I think it's just about whether or not Donald, Floyd, Leonard, you know, uh, Leonard Floyd, Von Miller, those guys can mix up their games along the defensive line, confuse the young offensive line, and get to Burrow uh, and really make the night hard on We're talking to Mike Band. Mike is senior manager of Next Gen Stats Research Analytics at the NFL. They have a group out there in Los Angeles. Previously, he worked for the Vikings. Got his start 
in football with the Florida Gators. One last question for you, Mike, before we let you go. I, I, is there anything that you guys do in your group with NGS that can help explain Cooper Cup? Can you help us understand how he is so dominant? Surely, with all that motion tracking, you can give us some statistical insight into what he does that is so different from another receiver. It's fascinating. Uh, I, I think this is a multifaceted answer. So, I, you know, as much as I want to give you a stat that says uh, that this is the answer. Uh, anything, anything, basically, is what we're looking for. Every, yeah, when I see him dominate, it's just how is that guy so open all the time? I think it has to do with body control, really, and and and, and uh, body control, athleticism, quickness, and then really an understanding and reading of defenses. Mm-hmm. So again, if you're a, if you're a receiver, it is all about leverage and, and, and space. You don't have to be the fastest receiver. That's actually exactly what we're finding in the data. You don't have to be the quickest. You just got to have, you know, for certain route types, you just got to really have a good feel for it. Okay, but Mike, give us yeah, if you if we wanted to to pour over NGS data and identify the next Cooper Cup or someone who's a poor man's Cooper Cup and we wanted to do it just with NGS data, what kinds of NGS stats might we look for that would reveal, uh, would operationalize what you're talking about in body control and feel? Yeah, uh, well, we could talk about explosiveness. So we have certain things like acceleration metrics within certain time frames on certain routes. Uh, we are trying to do things right now, and this is sort of in development, uh, on change of direction and, and uh, trying to measure uh, the relative radius of a, of a turn relative to the amount of time that it took uh, for a receiver to get in and out of his breaks. Mm-hmm. What we're finding is the difficulty of comparing apples to apples if you compare those numbers uh, from all routes. What needs to be done and what we're working on is to identify those traits acceleration, speed, and change of direction for each of those route types so that apples-to-apples comparisons can be made. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd, I'd be curious to know, you know, if, if you just start with the end and ask what at what moments he gets more separation than a typical receiver and then back into something happened just before that moment. But one, to quantify the distances that he does get that's different, if it's true, and then and then use that as a lead but it's fascinating, and your group is the group that's going to be developing these insights and telling us more about these things. It's been a lot of fun to watch for the last few years, and we look forward to watching watching what you guys do for the next few years. Mike, listen, very much appreciate your joining us. We could talk to you for a long time about this stuff. We hope to have you back to talk about it more. Thank you all. Appreciate it. This was fun. Absolutely. Mike Band, Senior Manager of NextGen Stats Research and Analytics at the NFL part of the Michael Lopez empire. I think that's fair to say. That's not empire is not the right word, but the influence, the circle, the contributions that are being made by that group into the world of sports analytics. All right, guys, that has been two hours of Wharton money about two hours of sports analytics here on Sirius XM. We do it every week for the whole crew. Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen. This is Cade Massey for Matty D the boss man right here running the controls and Dion Simpkins. You know, he's actually the one running the controls. He's making this thing happen. We are indebted to him and thankful to get a little time with Deion Simpkins. Thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. (laughs) 